how do you respond to people in need? We live in a day and age when the lives of so many people, indeed so many hurting people, are seemingly ever before us. First with the telegraph, then with the radio, incredibly and viscerally with the television, and now seemingly climactically with social media and the internet. Never before have the sorrows and trials of other people invaded our consciousnesses with such regularity and force. It's constant, right? I mean, it's in our pockets. The, the sorrows of the world are ever with us. And the result of all this, I fear, can be the dulling and deadening of our own hearts. We become calloused from constant exposure to the pains of this world. Whether that is orphans in Ukraine or migrants in Mexico, whether families in Uvalde, Texas, or women in Afghanistan, technology has allowed us to feel so close and yet to remain so far away from helping. You know, in previous generations, I was acquainted with the trials of my kin and my neighbors. And thus, I was able to make a difference by helping in tangible and obvious ways. Today, however, what am I to do with the knowledge of horrific mudslides in India? With a world full of sorrows and pains, how should we respond? If, like me, you're often inundated by the trials of your own life and those closest to you, it can seem overwhelming at the thought of adding the world's sorrows on top of our own. How should we respond? How does Jesus respond? This morning, in part to help answer these questions, we'll be continuing in our series in the book of Mark. So let me encourage you to turn there now. We'll be in Mark 6, verses 33 to 56. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus, the Christ, come onto the scene as Israel's long-awaited king. As God the Father anointed God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And then over the last six chapters, Jesus has authoritatively taught about the kingdom of God. He's healed the sick. He's conquered demons. He's forgiven sins. He's subdued the wind and the waves. He's displayed incredible tenderness and mercy to the seemingly hopeless. Though he's been opposed by religious leaders, his hometown, and even his family, Though he's been misunderstood by the crowds, yet Jesus has continued to call people to follow him and to repent at the kingdom's coming. Last week, we saw Jesus deputize the 12 apostles for the first Christian mission, and thus we arrive at Mark chapter 6, verse 33 this morning. We'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus of Nazareth is the God of Israel, who provides for his people. Jesus of Nazareth is the God of Israel who provides for his people. This sermon will be fairly front-loaded, so just be aware of that. When I get to verse 34, you're going to be like, this sermon's halfway over, and you're only at verse 34, so just be aware. Let's read together Mark 6, beginning in verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from 
all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And then we got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is found in verses 33 to 44, entitled Bread in the Wilderness. And so we note that our passage picks right up on the heels of last week when the apostles returned from their mission and they began to go away with Jesus for some rest. The problem, however, is that Jesus' popularity doesn't afford them any reprieve. Just as chapter 3 had noted that when the great crowd heard all that Jesus was doing, they came to him. So in verse 33, the crowd literally beats the boat, like they run around the sea to speed ahead and meet Jesus at his next destination. As we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus attracts massive crowds. You know, sometimes they want sincerely spiritual truth, other times, they seem more interested in the spectacle of the matter, viewing Jesus as just a doctor on demand, a miraculous healer. But look how Jesus responds to them in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them. Friends, notice 
Jesus' response. The ESV translates it perfectly. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion. When he saw those in need, his heart was drawn out. That word, had compassion, is an especially rich word. It's only used of Jesus in the New Testament, and it denotes this deep affection and pity and love. It communicates a heartfelt sympathy and a a yearning over. It's the reaction a parent has when they see their child hurt or injured. And, you know, the parent's heart, you can just see it, goes out to them. That's what Jesus here is experiencing. And so, brothers and sisters, praise God. Praise God that when Jesus sees those in need, he doesn't think about how inconvenienced or interrupted he is. He doesn't think about himself and his own plans or expectations. And Jesus was here trying to get away, trying to get some reprieve with his disciples. But he doesn't think about himself. He thinks of others. He thinks about the good of others. He feels for them. And so it's not just that Jesus acts. We'll see in a second how Jesus acts to address the crowd's need. But we should note here that fundamentally, when Jesus acts, it is the overflow of his affection that leads him to act. That is, when Jesus serves us and saves us, when he acts to meet our needs, when he provides for us, he doesn't do so begrudgingly. He doesn't do so reluctantly. So often, that is our reaction when we see needs, isn't it? The dishes have to get done. I guess I'll do it. Someone has to go pick up the coffee at work. I guess I can go get it. Brothers and sisters, that is not how Jesus accomplishes salvation. That's just not how he relates to his people, not begrudgingly, reluctantly, with his arm twisted behind his back. He's not miserly. No, he feels deep affection and compassion, and then he acts. When Jesus sees our sin and in a plight of our own making, you know, he doesn't look at God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and just say, I guess someone's got to go down and rescue them. I guess I'll do it. No. When the Lord Jesus sees us, his needy people, he delights to come down. He pities us and loves us and feels affection for us. His heart is drawn out, and then he acts. Trinity Church of Bedford, when you are suffering, when you are in need, know that Jesus feels compassion. He knows what it's like to suffer, doesn't he? He's no stranger to the experience of pain and loneliness and desolation that suffering can bring. And so whether you're suffering with sickness or job loss or financial strain or relational pressures, whether others have sinned against you or whether you're suffering even as a result of your own sin, you can be assured that you can go to Jesus knowing that he feels compassion. In prayer, we don't have to worry that we're bothering Jesus as if Jesus rolls his eyes when we bring to him our needs. Oh, Christian, be encouraged here by the heart 
of Christ. He loves his people. He loves you. And your suffering does not diminish his affection. It rather stirs it up and draws him out all the more. And so by way of application, you know, this means that we too should respond with compassion and not frustration at others who are needy. Because how often can we be fed up with or sick of those with constant needs? Whether with a coworker who never seems to pull his or her weight, or a neighbor who always seems to need to borrow your garden tools, or even with our own offspring, who God has designed us specifically to care for. We can become weary of those who have needs, such that their needs don't draw out our compassion, but our frustration. Oh, may God give us grace to respond like Christ when we see those in need around us. Praise God that Jesus is a compassionate Savior. And yet Jesus doesn't only feel, he then acts to solve the need, right? He, he meets it. You, you notice the language of verse 44, 34, that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is the particular reason that drew out Christ's heart. What does it mean? Well, it's not an especially flattering image to compare people to sheep. Sheep are weak, vulnerable, stupid, in need of lots of help. In short, sheep need a shepherd. You know, otherwise they get eaten by wolves and walk off cliffs. Sheep need direction and provision, and that's what the shepherd is for. The shepherd guides and protects. He leads away from danger and beside still waters. The shepherd gently binds up the wounds of the sheep and forcefully fights for the protection against opponents and enemies. The shepherd leads and loves, serves and protects. Uh, that's what this crowd is, a bunch of helpless sheep. That's what we are. But that's what Jesus came to do, to lead and love, serve and protect. And yet there's more to it than that. When Mark says they were like sheep without a shepherd, he's not just conjuring up this really peaceful image. He's actually quoting from the Bible. He's quoting from Numbers 27. So in Numbers 27, God's people have been wandering in the desert after being liberated from slavery in Egypt. The Lord tells Moses that he's going to die. And then in Numbers 27, Moses responds by saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. In short, Moses is saying to the Lord, Israel needs a shepherd. And the Lord responds by saying, I give you Jesus. It's the Greek word for Joshua. A man who has the spirit of God to lead the people of God. And then the job description of this shepherd, according to verse 20, Numbers 27 is, you shall invest him with your authority 
that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. That is, Joshua will lead the people of God in such a way that they will obey the Lord. And so here in Mark 6, we see the culmination in fulfillment of God's provision of a shepherd for Israel. Because now, Jesus, Jesus, comes on the scene as the spirit-filled leader of the flock of God, the congregation of Israel. And the whole reason that Jesus is here is the whole reason that Joshua was appointed. So that God's people would obey. That's why verse 34 ends the way it does. Do you notice that? Perhaps it's a strange transition to you. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus delivers a sermon. I mean, is that kind of naturally what you and I would think? No, right, we think... First, Jesus sees a need. Second, he feels compassion. And then you think it would be, so he met, he gave them the bread then, or he healed everyone. Or, but here we see that, that Jesus sees a need, feels compassion, and delivers a sermon. You know, I'm guessing that most of us don't naturally think about teaching the word of God as mercy ministry. It's not exactly what comes to mind when we think about meeting tangible needs or deeds of compassion. Now, obviously, it is good and right to fill backpacks and cook meals and dig wells and mentor students and, and do all of these things. You know, praise God for, for Christians who do these good deeds. Jesus, in just a few moments, will provide physical sustenance. So it's obviously good to meet, as Christians, physical needs. And yet, it is instructive that while the crowd has come to Jesus looking for physical, material sustenance, Jesus' ministry of compassion is teaching them the word of God. While physical provision is important, spiritual sustenance is even more important. You know, that's what we read earlier in Deuteronomy 8 in our scripture reading. Do you remember what Deuteronomy says, and Jesus will quote in Matthew? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is what we need in this life, in this world, is not most fundamentally food. It's God's word. What is most important every day is not that we feed three times a day, but that we feed upon God's word. From Jesus' perspective, evangelism is a form of mercy ministry. Your discipling others and reading the Bible with them is a deed of compassion because it helps them to obey. Again, this isn't to exclude the other wonderful ways that we can serve others, but it is instructive. And I think Jesus' priorities should be our priorities. This is why as a church, we prioritize speaking the gospel from our budget to our programs to our time. We want to focus as a church on the one task that God has entrusted only to the local church. There is one task that only the local church can do, and that is the preaching of the gospel. We, of course, want to be involved in other ministries and serving in various capacities, uh, but we're thankful that other social organizations can do these things, can be devoted to them. 
God has entrusted the teaching of the word of God specifically to the church. Individually and collectively, we of course want to be known for our good deeds and acts of service in the community. And yet, if there is only one thing that we can succeed at at, as a church, let it be that we were committed to the teaching of God's word. And then, of course, let's pray that the Lord would cause it to bear good fruit in our lives as we obey him and serve others. All right, that's verse 34. Don't worry, things will get shorter from here. We look at verse 35 as kind of the main event of this section begins. Apparently, Jesus has been teaching for so long that now the hour is late. I'll leave it to you whether or not long sermons is a valid application of verse 35. But we see the disciples' eminently reasonable request in verse 36. Send them away so they can buy for themselves something to eat. To which Jesus responds with a seemingly unreasonable command. He says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. The seeming absurdity of this command is matched by the disciples' reply as they wonder aloud if they're going to need two, uh, rather half a year's labor to buy bread for this crowd. Jesus, it seems, is asking them to do the impossible. And yet, friends, we must realize that apart from Jesus' power, really all of his commands are impossible. That is, they are all unrealistic and unachievable apart from his grace. How in the world are we supposed to count everything as loss in view of the surpassing knowledge, the value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, apart from God's grace? How in the world are we supposed to take up our cross daily apart from Christ's power? How in the world can we not only believe but put it into practice that it's more blessed to give than to receive apart from Jesus' power. Beloved, the Lord Jesus gives not only the command, but also the power to obey his command. So we see in verse 38 that Jesus tells them to inquire about how much food they have, five loaves and two fish. Jesus commands them to sit in groups. And then we come to verse 41. Look there. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Now, if this language sounds familiar to you, it's because Mark will use the exact same language to describe Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in Mark chapter 14. That is at Jesus' last supper on the night in which he was betrayed. There he took the bread He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave to his disciples. What's the significance of this? Well, simply that this meal with the 5,000, it anticipated the meal that Jesus would inaugurate for all of his followers. So that now, it's not just the 5,000 who got to enjoy the banquet of Christ. Well, now it's you and I. It's all of us. It's all of Christ's followers. We too partake of a meal that Christ has instituted, which shows our dependence upon Christ for salvation and provision. This meal pointed forward, foreshadowed that Lord's Supper meal. 
And yet, even as it looked forward to the Lord's Supper, well, this feeding of the 5,000 also looked back. It looked back to the Lord's provision of manna in the wilderness for the nation of Israel. You'll recall how after Yahweh, the Lord, had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he led them through the wilderness into the promised land. And on the journey, he didn't leave them to secure their own bread. No, he provided for them. He sustained them. He gave them their daily bread in the form of manna from heaven. God provided for God's people. And it's the exact same case here with Jesus. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, provides bread. And you notice the location. It's the same. In the wilderness, just as the Lord fed Israel in the wilderness. And so thus, in pointing back to the manna from heaven and in pointing forward to the Lord's Supper, here in Mark 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, we see how the Lord Jesus well, how he both provides for his people physically and spiritually. You know, he gives us our daily bread, doesn't he? He gives us what we need. And he also sustains us spiritually as the supper is a sign of Christ's broken body and shed blood on our behalf. How he's died for the forgiveness of our sins. And so thus, in this passage, we encounter the divine identity of Jesus. Because who is the shepherd of Israel? Well, remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Who provides bread in the wilderness for the nation of Israel? The Lord. And this Lord has now taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ as he provides for the new Israel. That's what we see in verses 42 and 43. It reads, and all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Why does Mark go out of his way? Why does Jesus go out of his way to collect the leftovers? Why does Mark go out of his way to mention the number of baskets of leftovers? Well, it's to symbolize that just as Jesus had chosen 12 apostles to constitute the basis of a new Israel. So now he's providing you know, he's got these 12 baskets of leftovers for his disciples, for the new Israel. Here at this wilderness banquet, we see the Lord Jesus provide both physically and spiritually for the new Israel, the people of God, his followers. Let's turn now to our second section in verses 45 to 52 entitled, I Am Passes By. The first thing to notice about our section is how immediately and closely, again, it builds on the previous section. So verse 45 says, immediately he forced or made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. It's an unusually strong verb to describe how Jesus has to make his disciples get into the boat without him. You know, perhaps the disciples were finally getting the memo that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be with Jesus. You remember that's what Jesus had called his disciples to be. Yet why here, if Jesus has constantly been saying, come with me, be with me, why does Jesus so forcefully insist upon their separation? What design 
had he planned for their temporary distance? Well, in the meantime, Jesus dismisses the crowds. And then in verses 46 to 48, we see this marked contrast between Jesus and the disciples. They're at sea. He's on land. They're together. He's alone. They are struggling hard. Jesus is calmly and serenely praying. And, you know, isn't it fascinating that Jesus went up to pray? Even though there were urgent needs all around him, from the disciples to the crowds, he retreated to pray, even though he must have been exhausted. You remember, he had been trying to get away with the disciples when this massive crowd shows up. And yet, after serving them, he goes alone and doesn't say that he slept. It says that he taught all day. He dismissed them at night. And we're about to see he's going to be praying till around 3 or 6 a.m. Even though he must have been exhausted, Jesus prayed. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but prayer is usually one of the first things off of my calendar when life gets busy and stressful. When I have lots of urgent needs around me, my impulse isn't, I need to get away to pray. But as always, Jesus shows us a better way of going to the Father, one of prioritizing time with God even amidst life's hecticness. Just as he prayed alone in chapter 1, before he began his itinerant preaching ministry, so now he prays alone before a dramatic revelation to his disciples. We're going to see three kind of subpoints here, three revelations to the disciples. So look at verse 48. It reads, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. While this storm doesn't have the demonic illusions that the previous storm did, back in chapter 4, where Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, the disciples are once again basically helpless without Jesus. But verse 48 continues. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Three things that Mark would show us about the identity of Jesus. So sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., notice it says that Jesus came to them. All right, this is important. Jesus intended to get into the boat with them. He wasn't trying to walk around them. He wasn't trying to get to the other side without them noticing. His whole intention was to come to them. And so how does Jesus do this? Number one, he walks on the water. He walks on the water. I mean, this is, this is crazy, right? I wonder if the familiarity of this story to many of us kind of blinds us to the craziness of Jesus walking amidst this storm on the sea. Who can do this? Who has the power to do this? How can Jesus do this? Well, friends, I wonder if you recall our call to worship this morning. I wonder if you paid attention to Job 9. How Job marvels at the character and transcendence and power and uniqueness of God. There's no one like him in this universe. 
from the creation of the mountains to their removal, from the shaking of the earth. He's the one who commands the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens, and who alone walks on the waves of the seas. Friends, Jesus' walking on the water is more than just a cool trick. It's not an optical illusion. It's not Jesus' attempt to impress his disciples with a random act of supernatural ability. It is an assertion of Jesus' divine identity. For he does what God alone can do. It's the exact same phrase in Job 9 and in Mark 6, that Jesus walks on the waters. It's because Jesus is the creator God that he rules over the elements of this world, that he can walk upon the waves. And in doing this, Jesus does something that Job could never have imagined. In Job 9.11, it says, Behold, he passes by me. That's the second thing we see. Jesus passes by the disciples. In Job 9.11, it says, Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. That is, in Job's day, he's saying God is so mysterious and other that no one can really know him. His glory is so ineffable, his presence so mysterious that we can't really see him or behold him. Yet here in Mark 6, in the fourth watch of the night on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus comes to pass by his disciples and he doesn't do it to hide his glory, but to reveal it. Jesus came to pass by, that is to make his glory known. Even as Yahweh, the Lord, had passed by, it's the same verb in all these occasions. Moses in Exodus 34 on Mount Sinai, even as the Lord had passed by Elijah in 1 Kings 19 on Mount Sinai as a revelation of his glory, even as Job said the Lord passed by, yet that revelation was too great and unknowable for Job. Yet here Jesus comes not intending to walk around. That, again, that's why Jesus intended to come to the disciples. So when Mark says that Jesus intended to pass by, he's not saying that Jesus intended to walk around them. He's saying that that which the Lord did with Moses, so Jesus is doing with his disciples. But they think it's a ghost, right? The disciples cry out, they're so terrified, but then look at Jesus' response in verse 50. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. This is the third thing we see, the revelation of Jesus' identity. Here we see the climax of Jesus' revelation to his disciples. First, he walks on water, which only God can do. Second, he passes by with his glory, which only the Lord does. And third, Jesus uses the divine personal name to describe himself. When Jesus says, it is I, or I am, it's the same wording that the Lord had used in Exodus 3 to reveal himself to Moses. That is, God said to to tell Moses, to tell the people that I am has sent you to the nation of Israel. And so now Jesus appropriates that very wording to describe himself. Take heart. I am. 
I am is here. And so friends, there can be no doubt about it. Jesus does what only God can do. Jesus acts in a way that only God acts. And Jesus claims to be God himself. Jesus is the divine, second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, now taken on flesh for our salvation. And so do you remember what we've basically been asking and answering every week in Mark's gospel? It's the title of our series, Who is Jesus? And it's precisely that question that Jesus is answering for his people, for his disciples. That's why he made them get in the boat earlier. That's why he sent them away ahead of time. That's why he prayed in light of such a momentous event. Because through the walking of the water and the passing of his glory and the revelation of his name, Jesus was communicating himself to them. Jesus is God made flesh. He's God with us. Friends, it's that truth that we want you to know. If you're not here as a Christian this morning, we're so glad you've joined us. We want you to know that Jesus is God. You know, there are many people in this world who claim to be God. You can Google them. But only Jesus does what only God can do. And there are many people who claim that Jesus was just a sage teacher. You know, he was just an enlightened, progressive thinker for his day. Well, no, friends, he was much more than that. He is God made flesh. Jesus intended to make his disciples to know this. And yet, what does verse 51 and verse 52 state? And when he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they didn't understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. For all of Jesus' intention and clear revelation, yet the disciples don't get it. And just as an aside, note here how this is more good evidence for the reliability of the Gospels. If the Gospel of Mark is mere religious propaganda put out by Christian religious leaders and elites, why do you include the disciples looking like such fools? More than just fools, hard-hearted sinners. Like Pharaoh over Egypt, the disciples beheld the Lord's power and still didn't understand. Like the Pharisees in the synagogue in chapter 3, they beheld the Lord's compassion and yet still didn't know him. Friends, access to spiritual truth is no guarantee of the apprehension of spiritual truth. Access to spiritual truth is no guarantee of its apprehension. The disciples here had a front row seat, literally, to God's glory in Christ. And yet, for now, their hearts remained hardened. That's why we pray for our kids especially, right? We want to be exposing them to the gospel, bringing them to church, speaking the truth of God's word into their lives day in and day out. And yet, we don't mistake the hearing of the gospel with the believing of it. We pray for them and for others. In not understanding about the loaves, the disciples failed to see Jesus as the God of Israel. For it's the Lord who shepherds his people. It's the Lord who teaches them his law. It's the Lord who provides bread in the wilderness. It's the Lord who makes the way in the sea and passes by to reveal his glory. Jesus is the I am, the God of Israel. 
And so let's turn to our third and final section now in verses 53 to 56, entitled, Begging for Healing and Finding Salvation. Really, these verses serve as a summary statement about Jesus' ministry, but it also neatly concludes some of the themes we've seen in previous chapters. So we note, again, the massive crowd of people coming together. They brought their sick because they want healing. And notice what the middle of verse 56 says. They laid their sick in the marketplace and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Friends, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you'll recall how prominent this theme of begging for Jesus was. Begging Jesus for help from the demon-possessed demoniac to the pig farmers and townspeople to Jairus and his daughter to the woman with the discharge. Jesus gave hope to the hopeless. And so this begging here from, from those who brought the sick. Well, it's a sign of the contrition and humility and genuineness of their desire for help, their desperation for Jesus. Notice also how they want to touch even the fringe of Jesus' garment. Just as the woman with the discharge touched Jesus' garment for healing and salvation, well, now the word seems to have spread. You know, it's fascinating. I wonder if it was the woman who told others about the healing and salvation that she had received. Perhaps she had been the one to tell of Jesus' great might and great mercy. And so the end of verse 56 concludes, and as many as touched it were saved. As many as touched it were saved. And this, again, Mark deliberately repeats a word and a theme that was so prominent just two weeks ago. For many in the crowd, they viewed Jesus as a vending machine of physical healing, a miracle worker and doctor on demand. Yet for some, for those with faith, like Jairus and the woman with the discharge, their physical healing both symbolized the spiritual salvation that Jesus offered. What was the difference between Jesus or the crowd and those who received salvation? Well, it was faith. It was faith that saved. It was faith in Jesus, in who he is. And so, friends, as we conclude, this is the call upon your life and mine. Jesus of Nazareth is the God of Israel who provides for his people. He didn't come to parade his glory and win applause. He didn't come for approval and ease. He came rather on earth to suffer for sins. He came to save us from our spiritual sickness, namely our rebellion against God, so that he could grant us forgiveness of sins and peace with God. He came to nourish us, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, may you adore your great God and Savior. Consider and praise God for his compassion and tenderness. And friend, if you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've never trusted in his perfect life and substitutionary death and glorious resurrection from the dead, we'll do so today. And you too will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you show mercy to needy sinners such as us, that you sent the Lord Jesus as our compassionate and great Savior. We pray that you'd help us to show that same compassion to others. 
We pray that we would understand him as who he truly is, our great God and Savior, the great I am of Israel, our Lord and our King. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.